This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This is Taking the Temperature, a special production from The Pulse, stories about climate science and the people doing this work. I'm Mike and Scott. The sand at the beach was dark, almost black. There was a terrible smell in the air. It was full of bones and skulls, and there was this little hut in the middle of it. Filmmaker Evgenia Arbogaiva had arrived here sort of by chance. She was in the Siberian Arctic, where she's from, working on a documentary. We were in this region called Chukotka, following indigenous uh, Chukchi people who are living off the land and the sea. Evgenia was on a boat with some hunters, and they wanted her to visit this beach because it's a special gathering place. The hunters told us that every autumn there are thousands of walruses that haul out on this beach. The walruses haul out or come out of the water and cram their massive bodies onto this beach. And there is this lone scientist that comes and lives among them in this little hut. For a few months out of the year, Evgenia decided she had to meet the scientist who is observing the walruses, Maxim Chakilev. Maxim is a marine biologist. Um, He's been coming there for 10 years. And he's really dedicated to these animals. And, you know, it's a unique site for him to study because it's about 80% of the whole population of Pacific walruses gather there in autumn. So he monitors the time when they arrive. He records how long they're staying, what's the gender of the animals, the age, etc. So all this data that is then analyzed, and so we know how the population of Pacific walruses is changing. The lives and habits of these walruses have already been fundamentally altered by climate change, even the fact that they come to this beach in such great numbers. In an ideal world, walruses would not come out on land at all, or they would come out in very small numbers. They're migratory animals, and they would rest on floating ice during their migration and feeding. But because there is no ice in summer anymore, they're just forced to come out, haul out on on land to rest. And the reason why they come out on this particular beach is because their feeding ground, which is mollusks, kind of fields of mollusks on the bottom of the ocean, is about 200 kilometers from this beach. So what they do, they, they go feed, then they come back and they rest on the beach, and then they go back again and feed, and they do it about three times. Evgenia co-created a documentary about the walruses and the scientists' work. It's called Haul Out, and it was nominated for an Oscar this year. It offers an up-close look at the plight of these animals and the work of the scientist. When the walruses come out of the water, Maxim's little hut is completely surrounded for weeks at a time. So much so, he can't leave at all. He's stuck inside. Yeah, sometimes I felt that I was in in the film Lord of the Rings and and there was like army of orcs. (laughs) What does Maxim want to do other than document and learn? What is his 
goal? The goal is to continue to collect the data so that we know we have an information of how these animals are impacted by climate change, by the absence of ice, and how we can protect them. So it's very important that there is the scientists in, on the ground and then, then they communicate and we have this bigger picture of what these animals are, are going through. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I think all biologists that are now working are concerned about the same thing, really, of uh, disappearance of, of species and what can be done to protect them. Climate research often involves traveling great distances and braving the elements to collect data, a slow and tedious process that contributes pieces to a gigantic puzzle, telling the story of our changing planet. On this episode, we'll meet climate scientists who are on the front lines and hear about their research. Also, what motivates them to keep going, to keep working. To get started, let's head from the Arctic to the opposite side of the planet, Antarctica. Some parts of this continent are warming at a very fast pace, like the Antarctic Peninsula, a piece of land that juts up from the continent towards South America. Other parts of Antarctica are not warming so quickly. And there are other things at play here that make all of this difficult to study, like wind and weather patterns that can shift naturally. The changing conditions have ripple effects that impact wildlife in the area. For example, penguins. Adelie penguin populations have declined drastically, while Gen 2 penguins have become more plentiful. Scientists are trying to figure out how the numbers are shifting and why. Sophia Schmidt reports. Winter is just beginning on the western Antarctic Peninsula. That means temperatures are dropping and the day length is starting to shrink. Adolescent penguins have recently left their nests. Young Adelie penguins swim out to sea, resting on patches of floating sea ice. Gen 2 penguins, with their bright orange beaks and flippers, hang out on rocky islands and dive into the chilly water, hunting for shrimp-like krill and small fish. Both Adelie and Gen 2 penguins eat the same kind of prey, and scientists are trying to figure out how that prey responds to changes in the environment. Matthew Brees is a researcher at the University of Delaware. We arrived on station. Uh, this past summer in Antarctica, Matt collected data on how much krill was available for the penguins to eat and where it was located. He studied the phytoplankton and algae the krill eat, too. So it's kind of a food web all the way from the, from the very bottom, you know, light and nutrients all the way up to, to penguins. Matt's team uses a torpedo-shaped robot to gather data underwater. It's equipped with sensors to measure all kinds of ocean conditions. The salinity, turbidity, um, you know, how much uh, sediment or, or things like that are in the water, um, temperature all the way at depth. How do all of these variables impact the availability of food for the penguins? Each day, if the weather's good, the team packs the robot, also known as an Autonomous Underwater Vehicle, or AUV, into an inflatable boat. We're in the Zodiac, headed out to the AUV launch point. Uh, we're about nine kilometers away from the station. The boat's pretty small, about the size of a moving truck. Uh, Palmer Station, Palmer Station, this is Zodiac 4. 
We're leaving the local boating area and we're going to head to the AUV drop off point near the Gen 2 transect. Copy that, 30 at 4, 10 or 3. Um, a little bit of brash ice in the area that we have to watch out for so it can't go full speed. Um, but it's a nice day. The team programs the robot with a mission swim in a crisscross pattern over the top of a deep water canyon. And then they lower the robot, all 150 pounds of it, over the side of the boat. Layla's sending the run command now. The robot runs its mission, gathering data for a few hours. Then the researchers find the robot using acoustic signals and go pick it up. You know, load it on the boat, motor back to the station, and then put the vehicle back on charge, download the data, and look at the data, make sure we're collecting good quality data, and then do it all again the next day. Bomber station, Bomber station, Zodiac 4. We have launched the AUV and we are returning to the station. The data Matt is gathering on where the penguin food is helps other researchers, like Megan Semino from UC Santa Cruz. She's in Antarctica right now, trying to figure out why some penguin populations are declining sharply, while others are thriving. It's sort of an interesting problem because they're all mainly eating the same food, krill, and they're breeding relatively close together. They're breeding on different islands, but about you know, 10 kilometers apart. So they're all sort of in the same area, foraging within the same regions on the same thing. So how can their populations be doing such different things? The two species, Adeli and Gen 2, are closely related. They're both black and white, like cartoon penguins. The Adelis are about two feet tall and weigh roughly as much as a house cat. They've got distinctive little white rings around their eyes and are found on coasts around the entire Antarctic continent, wherever they can find bare rocky ground to lay their eggs. The Gen 2 penguins are a little bigger and can swim faster. They have a white patch above their eye. They're found further from the pole on the milder Antarctic Peninsula and sub-Antarctic islands. Megan works on a long-term research study where scientists have collected the same sorts of data since the 1990s. She spends a few months of the year at a research base near the peninsula called Palmer Station. It's a cluster of buildings covered in blue-gray siding on a craggy, rocky area with a big white glacier in the backdrop. There are a few dozen people, a library, a gift shop, a gym, a makeshift t-shirt printing studio, and a movie theater. Being here... You think you would feel very isolated, but it's actually the opposite. You're living and working, eating dinner, like hiking alongside sort of the same people every day. And you have this, you know, small community, small family that you're celebrating all these holidays with or people's birthdays. And it can be like very fun and very busy and also like very nerdy. You know, we're a bunch, a lot of us are a bunch of scientists working on similar problems. And so it can be a really productive sort of atmosphere to work on your project. On days when the weather's good enough, Megan travels by boat to nearby islands. All right, we've just gotten off the boat and we're walking up to the penguin colony now. She counts penguins in nesting areas using a tally counter. She measures and weighs chicks before they leave the nest. Okay, beak length is 46.5. And she tapes tiny GPS transmitters to adult penguins' backs to track them as they hunt for food. 
One potential explanation Megan has for why a deli and Gen 2 penguins are responding differently to the changing environment has to do with rain and snow. She says there's some evidence that the Antarctic Peninsula has gotten more precipitation. Both the deli and Gen 2 penguins breed in large colonies made up of hundreds or thousands of pairs. They lay their eggs on bare rock where they build nests out of small pebbles so their eggs don't roll away. They need those pebbles to be exposed to make a nice nest. And if they get to their breeding site and it's covered in snow, um, they either can just, you know, lay their egg anyway in the snow or sort of wait as long as they can um, for that snow to melt to build their nest and then lay their eggs. Gen 2 penguins stay on the same island all year round, so they have some flexibility in when they lay their eggs. Megan says they can wait until the snow melts. But the Adelis are on a strict schedule because they migrate out to sea each winter. So they can't be, you know, waiting around forever for the snow to melt. So a lot of times they could be laying their eggs on snow. Megan says wet eggs are less likely to hatch. And even if they do... These chicks don't have waterproof feathers. So um, when their feathers do get wet, the chick can get, you know, very cold. And then they're having to expend energy to keep their body warm. Megan's work is about observation, collecting data, putting together a bigger picture. But seeing this all play out often takes an emotional toll. To see colonies decrease in size and chicks not survive and, you know, seeing chicks wet and cold, it's really depressing for sure. Seeing the Adelie numbers decrease could have to do with the snow on land. It could be related to humans fishing for krill in the waters nearby. And Megan has another theory. The amount of sea ice off the western Antarctic Peninsula has been decreasing, which may make life tougher for the Adelie penguins. They rely on sea ice, especially during the winter when they head out to sea. The ice is a nice place to rest and escape predators. It's also key to the food web. Sea ice can attract a lot of other critters that they eat, so it could um, provide a nice like foraging habitat and then resting platform. With less sea ice, Adelis could miss that crucial part of their habitat. Gen 2 penguins, on the other hand, tend to live in places with less sea ice. Gen 2s are more ice-avoiding. Megan says it's important to study penguins because they're a good indicator of overall change. By studying seabirds, you can get a look into basically all ecosystem components. You know, through the eyes of a, of a penguin, you can study oceanography, weather, sea ice, and prey resources. Megan and other scientists predict that in decades to come, Adelis could disappear from the western Antarctic Peninsula and nearby islands. We've already seen one of um, the islands around here have an Adelie colony that went extinct, and a few of our other um, colonies on different islands are very close to extinction. We'll see how long they sort of hold out. But in other parts of Antarctica, researchers have seen Adelis thrive. For example, on Ross Island, which is thousands of miles away from Palmer Station in Antarctica. It's closer to the pole. It's colder than the peninsula, where Megan works. Too cold for the Gen 2 penguins. Grant Ballard does research here. He's chief science officer at Point Blue, a nonprofit research organization that advocates for conservation. Grant and his team are there during Antarctic summer, when there's 24 hours of sunlight. 
but that doesn't translate to warmth. Temperatures range from just zero degrees Fahrenheit to around 32 degrees at best. Somehow, they sleep in canvas tents. Basically, it's it's horrible. <laughs> you just get in your sleeping bag. Sleeping bags are awesome. You know, and then you, you know, basically are doing crunches or some kind of shivering or something to warm up inside your sleeping bag for the first, you know, whatever, five or ten minutes, and then, and then you're fine. They eat two breakfasts and snack all day to fend off the cold. They hike miles to and from Adelie breeding areas, where they count some penguins by hand. We'll have, like, uh, two or three people count the same one at the same time, and then try to get our number to be within 5% of each other. And that can be frustrating. (laughs) Some subcolonies there have grown to over a 1,000 breeding pairs, so Grant's team uses drones to count those. Grant describes himself as a diehard optimist, and he thinks warming temperatures in Antarctica could create not just problems, but also new options for penguins. For example... Scientists have found ancient penguin mummies on a coastline near where Grant does his research. The scientists think cooling temperatures hundreds of years ago may have made the place uninhabitable for Adelis, but that might not be the case anymore. There's going to be new opportunities, so there's going to be places where the ecosystem will thrive and sort of like new life will, will be emerging. In general, Adelie penguins return to the place they were born to lay their first eggs, then keep breeding in that same place every year. This makes it hard for a colony to move as the environment changes. But in the nearly 30 years Grant has been traveling to Antarctica, he's observed individual differences in penguins. He's met some characters, like a penguin he called White Cheek. I followed that bird for basically her whole life. She had a white spot on her cheek, on her left cheek. Compared to other penguins, she was very consistent at raising two chicks every year and and was very uh, efficient at bringing back food. So she made quick, she was able to find food more quickly than the average penguin. Grant says some penguins have personalities. Some leave their chicks alone earlier, others later. Some are fastidious about their pebble nests. There's individuals that are more prickly, towards other penguins and others that are sort of nonchalant, others that are very expert at stealing rocks from one another and others that don't care about rocks. And this individuality could actually be useful in adapting to climate change. An adventurous youngster could spot a welcoming rocky breeding ground exposed by, say, newly melted ice. This bird and a mate could strike out on their own and start something new. There's a percentage of the population that just that that does wander and establishes new locations for breeding. So that seems to be part of how evolution works and how adaptation works. For The Pulse, I'm Sophia Schmidt. Coming up, digging into the bottom of the ocean to reveal clues about the planet's past climate. In the sands were big chunks of mollusk shells and... This was all a big surprise. That's next. We're talking about climate science. I'm Mike and Scott. Sometimes when you're trying to predict what will happen next, you have to look back. 
way back. Kim Cobb is a paleoclimatologist, meaning she looks at the Earth's most ancient geological records at the bottom of the ocean. I'm one of those people that is obsessed with climate of the past in many ways because it has so much relevance for our climate of the future. Kim pulls up samples from the ocean floor, for example, of coral, both living specimens that are decades or centuries old, and coral fossils, which can date back hundreds of millions of years. Together, they paint a picture of variations in temperature because it affects the growth of the coral shell. How do these changes show up? Like, when you pull up a sample, what do you see that tells you ooh, 125 million years ago, this thing happened or that thing happened. Like, what are you actually looking at? Well, the signals of temperature really get written into these different kinds of geological archives differently depending on what your archive is. So, for example, tree rings are looking at fat rings and thin rings to look at warmer, wetter years versus cooler, drier years that were stressing the tree. In the case of corals, we're looking at geochemical signatures that are locked into the coral skeleton. And I would say this comprises the vast majority of the kind of paleoclimate information we retrieve is actually written into the shells or skeletons of living organisms as they grew decades, centuries, millennia, or millions of years ago. And this is how we were able to get quantitative estimates of past temperatures from a very large number of geologic archives. That's Kim Cobb. She's a paleoclimatologist at Brown University in Rhode Island. This approach of looking to the bottom of the ocean as a time capsule is still fairly new. One of the field's founders and pioneers was the late Sir Nicholas Shackleton. As a grad student in the 1960s, he used new ways of dating seafloor fossils that revolutionized our understanding of the Earth's climate history. Here he is, shortly before he died, talking about how he collected columns of mud, called sediment cores, from beneath the seafloor. I worked with uh, both cores just got by dropping pipe over the edge of the ship with a weight on the top, that sort of thing, and drilling from a drilling ship if one wants to go deeper into the sediment. Nick died from cancer in 2006. Before he was able to finish a major project he was very passionate about, drilling for sediment cores off the coast of Portugal. It's an area where the seafloor is especially rich with information. Last fall, reporter Amy Mayer boarded a ship with a team of scientists who set out to finally complete this mission. We're all gathered on deck, shivering in the cold, as the research vessel Joides Resolution gets ready to ship out. The scientists around me are excited for their grand adventure. This expedition has been 13 years in the making. Deckhands bring in the massive ropes that have tethered us to a dock. Tugboats pull the 470-foot ship toward the open ocean, and the port of Lisbon disappears in the distance. The International Ocean Discovery Program's Expedition 397 is underway. But we're not going that far. After about 12 hours, we come to a stop. We're maybe 100 miles from the Portuguese coast. Geologists call this area the Iberian Margin. 
Over the next two months, we'll be sitting at four distinct spots, drilling down into the ocean floor and pulling back up those columns of mud called sediment cores. The Joides Resolution is a floating 1970s oil rig completely remodeled in the 80s to drill for science instead of fossil fuels. Towering on its deck is a 200-foot-tall derrick. It's a big, open, ladder-like pyramid, what you might see on an oil field. The ship carries a mile's worth of pipe that gets pieced together section by section. Those pieces form what's called the drill string. It turns and turns, making its way from the top of the tower through a hole in the ship, Then it plunges through 15,000 feet of water, all the way to the bottom of the ocean. Once it reaches the sea floor, it drills into that sediment, starting a hole. Next, the crew drops a 30-foot-long plastic tube into the pipe. When that enters the hole, it pushes deeper until its entire length is filled with mud. After that tube comes back up, the drillers drop the next one into the pipe. One by one, they go ever deeper into the hole, more than 1,500 feet into this sediment. The reason we're drilling in this location is that the seafloor here has a high sedimentation rate. That's the speed at which sand, pollen, and tiny critters settle onto the seafloor, creating, over millennia, the layers of information the scientists are looking for. That process here is about 10 times faster than in other parts of the ocean. David Hodell of the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom is one of two co-chief scientists trying to accomplish the work Nick Shackleton started. One day, in one of the ship's least noisy labs, David told me about the groundbreaking work Nick Shackleton did in this very location in the 1990s. On that trip, Nick didn't have the kind of equipment this ship has, so he couldn't dig nearly as deep, but he made a startling discovery. He demonstrated that the uh, surface record uh, looked exactly like Greenland, and the benthic, the bottom record, looked exactly like Antarctica. David says Nick realized the mud he dug up from just beneath the ocean floor revealed the same details as had been found in ice cores. It must have been like a eureka moment to say, aha, you know, this looks, you know, exactly like the Greenland ice core record, and this looks like the Antarctic ice core record. It takes a lot of chemical analyses and hours at microscopes to analyze samples, but David says there's no other spot in the world's oceans that captures records like these. It's kind of mind-blowing a bit that, you know, one, you know, one place in the ocean, one sediment core, can have links and components to both of the poles as well as the European uh, continent. But that's what makes this Iberian margin so special. Before Nick's discovery, details about polar air and water temperatures came from ice cores. That meant researchers could only study conditions as far back as there was ice. 800,000 years in Antarctica and less than 150,000 years in Greenland. Now they can use the sediment from here to create a picture of what the poles were like when Earth was a lot warmer. That will help make current climate models more robust. A better understanding of past climates might also help people prepare for the changes that are coming. 
It's why Nick Shackleton wanted to drill here and get mud that's millions of years old. And so we're just kind of fulfilling, I feel, you know, his, his wish, his dream. The late scientist's work, even his spirit, looms large over this mission. The other co-chief scientist, Fatima Abranch, is a researcher at the Portuguese Institute of Sea and Atmosphere. She sailed with Nick Shackleton in the mid-1990s. She says they basically worked around the clock, pulling up cores and taking samples to study. We would be four hours working, four hours sampling, four hours resting, four hours lacking. <laughs> It was like four, four, four. Um, And we sampled also together, the two of us. And uh, it was a lot of fun. She has a photo of them preparing to drop a pipe off the side of a boat. Nick's in shorts and sandals, which, by the way, would not fly today for safety reasons. Fatima says he only put on lace-up shoes when he was performing music. He took it so seriously that that was the only time he put a suit and wear shoes. Alongside his scientific success, he was also an accomplished woodwind player. Uh, he once told me that music was his life. Science was his hobby. Some hobby? His groundbreaking work inspired many, including the two dozen scientists Fatima and David gathered to drill the Iberian margin and unlock their own discoveries. They hope to show how the Earth's climate changed every 1,000 years over the past 3 to 4 million years. That's a super detailed record. They may also learn how those layers of mud document changes in Earth's orbit. We've been at sea for two weeks, seeing tube after tube of mud come up from the bottom, as many as 50 per hole, and we do several holes at each location. Every hour or two, the drill crew is handing cores off to science technicians. They carefully measure each core and cut it into three to four foot long sections. The sections begin the journey through the ship's many labs on tracks that feed the cylinders into different machines. After that, the technicians split them lengthwise. With this stuff right here, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's going to be so dangerous. At last, the cores are splayed open, exposed to human eyes for the first time. Each core is different. You have blue, from blue sediments to totally white chalk, full of forens, to reddish sediments full of glass. Forams, or foraminifera, and nanofossils help establish roughly what time period the sediment comes from. Quickly, it becomes clear the scientists have far exceeded the goal of three to five million year old mud. In the core description lab, Jerry McManus from Columbia University sees unexpected things in the mud. We suddenly recovered several cores that were quite a bit older than that, older than 10 million years, maybe 14 million years, and they were spectacularly variable. Light and dark layers of greens and browns with all sorts of goodies inside. In the sands were big chunks of mollusk shells and and things that clearly would have tumbled down from somewhere very close to the shore or very close to the surface. And this was all a big surprise and, and these were beautiful sediments. Despite the thrill of the unexpected, the pace of shipboard science can be relentless. Everyone works a 12-hour shift. The goal? To maximize how much sediment is collected. 
Fatima and David handpicked the members of the science party, who come from nearly a dozen countries. They sought a team with wide-ranging experience and expertise. Fatima says that was Nick Shackleton's way, too. She says Nick always modeled working together as a team toward the best science, putting aside competition. I think this is a really good lesson for the young people. After two months at sea, the scientists gather to bring in the final core. Everyone's a little giddy. They've collected four miles worth of mud. Three days later, tugs pull us into the port of Tarragona, Spain. Pallets of cores are shipped off to labs and the scientists head home. The seafaring adventure is over and the group has planned many intertwined projects. Co-chief David Hodel cautions they could take a while. There might be some splashy flashy things that, uh, that emerge you know, shortly after the expedition, but I'm more interested in kind of the slow burn stuff. The studies that might take years or decades. The youngest members of this crew will mentor another generation of paleoceanographers, further extending Nick Shackleton's legacy. That story was reported by Amy Mayer. During the expedition, she was the onboard outreach officer. You're listening to Taking the Temperature, a special production from The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. Coming up, documenting climate change can take a serious toll on people, and some scientists decided to share their feelings in letters. I'm ashamed to say that sometimes my frustration leads to apathy, and I hate feeling apathetic. That's next. Earlier, we heard from Kim Cobb about her research on the planet's climate history. She recently became the first-ever climate scientist appointed to President Biden's Intelligence Advisory Board. It's a group that gives the administration advice on matters of national security, which climate change is increasingly becoming a factor in. Think climate refugees, conflicts over fresh water, or over climate responses. Kim directs the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society, where she's working to find and build solutions for climate change. There are so many different ways to study climate change, oceans, sea level rise, forests, wildlife. And I wanted to know what she thought we should be focusing on. Well, I think it's really an interesting question in terms of what are the dividends of climate research in this era? And I think historically, the rewards from deep climate research is piling knowledge onto the pile to understand the severity, scope, and scale of our human influence on the climate system. And it has taken decades to get us to the point where we can have enough data and knowledge to, for example, link these climate extremes back to heat trapping fossil fueled emissions. It's taken us decades to understand what the underlying trends are in the ice sheet melting, for example. And what we're faced with now is a landscape where we need to harness climate research 
to keep communities safe today and over the next decades. We need to harness this research to understand how to build resilient infrastructure to protect our economies and our way of life. So I see more and more a shift to thinking about harnessing this knowledge for really clear societal benefits today. Do you get a sense that people who are studying climate change from different angles are working together a lot more these days? You know, some people look specifically at the ocean, as you've done for some good portion of your career. Other people look at weather. Other people look at things more from a flora and fauna kind of perspective. Are people sort of bringing all that knowledge together to central places where solutions can be discussed? Yes, I think more and more that is the case because that is what the problem demands. Uh, we have to see scientists coming together from across the natural, physical, social sciences, and even humanities to begin to address these systems problems with systems solutions. We are at such an all-hands-on-deck moment here in climate research and, frankly, as society broadly confronts the climate crisis that Uh, people are rolling up their sleeves and eager to get to work. And I think a lot of the disciplinary boundaries and kind of structural barriers and, you know, paranoid <laughs> framing in mind that some academics can get into about these turf battles has really fallen away in the very recent years as we really come to the, a full understanding of how far we are behind in addressing this crisis. It's a lot of pressure. I think society is asking a lot of climate scientists right now. <laughs> And I think the real question for our community is how quickly can we step up to the plate and show up in new ways with our knowledge and our skills. She says it's not just about doing more research and finding solutions. It's about keeping what we already know about the causes of climate change and how we can stop it in focus. And to keep reminding people whenever possible what these stakes are and what we see in the future, not to scare people, but to just wake them up to this moment, <laughs> what it means to be alive today as a decider of our planet's fate for millennia to come. Um, what an amazing responsibility and opportunity that is to live in this moment. Kim Cobb is a climate scientist and director of the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society. Doing this work, documenting climate change and getting the public to buy into it can take a toll on people in more ways than one. In 2014, Joe Duggan was in a master's program for science communication at the Australian National University in Canberra. He was already frustrated with climate change deniers. And then, as part of one of his courses, he had to watch a film which was billed as a documentary called The Great Global Warming Swindle. It put him over the edge. People in the film were speaking with passion and conviction, but with little evidence to back up their claims. And Joe wanted climate scientists to push back and to be more forceful in their own messaging, to include not just facts and data, but emotions. So almost 10 years ago, he started a project to try to make this happen. Nicole Curry has this profile. 
At first, Joe Duggan wanted to make a big statement, boldly capture the public's attention. We need scientists picketing in the street. We need them to get to the top of the Golden Gate Bridge and unfurl unfurl a banner saying climate change is real, do something. We need them on top of the Sydney Opera House. We need them, you know, chaining themselves to things. We need to, we need something, we need something drastic. Something to really show people that this was serious. But the more I thought about this approach, the more I realised that there were sort of fundamental flaws in that. Belief in scientists comes from how they hold themselves and how they communicate, and it's possible that breaking laws, breaking rules is going to undermine that message. Joe wanted climate scientists to show more passion, but not get arrested. So I went back to the drawing board and thought, well, okay, I want scientists to be able to communicate differently on climate change. I want them to be able to share their message. How do I go about it? And and ultimately, I settled on something really basic. Pen and paper basic. Joe decided to ask climate scientists around the world to write him a letter answering one question. How does climate change make you feel? Modern scientists, when they're publishing papers, spend so much time on a computer, so much time talking in clinical language. By offering them the chance to write a letter, I think I was giving them an opportunity to step away from that subconsciously. But Joe was nervous. I felt like it was, um, I was probably asking a lot of these people to put their names on, on a bit of paper and to share their feelings. I think anyone that curates a, a professional profile or persona might be reticent to let their personality come through. But then I was, I was blown away. I was, I was just about in tears when I got the first letter back. And the letters kept coming, expressing deep and heartfelt emotions about this work. Dear Joe, I feel nervous. The main things I feel about this are deep disappointment and anger, though I should probably try not to. Dear Joe, knowing how much is at stake, it scares me more than anything else. Like all of us climate scientists, I have several different feelings about climate change. One of the letters was from Katrin Meisner, the Climate Change Research Centre Director at the University of New South Wales, Australia. Knowing that I am one of the few people who understand the magnitude of the consequences, and then realising that most people around me are oblivious. I see a group of people sitting in a boat, happily waving, taking pictures on the way, not knowing that this boat is floating right into a powerful and deadly waterfall. It is still time to pull out of the stream. We might lose some boat equipment, but we might be able to save the people in the boat. But no one acts. Time is running out. Joe received more letters like this, filled with despair and frustration. Ailey Gallant, a senior research fellow at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, wrote about feeling exhausted. I get angry at the invalid opinions that are all pervasive in this age of indiscriminate information where evidence seems to play second fiddle to whomever can shout the loudest. And I often feel like shouting. But would that really help? I feel like they don't listen anyway. After all, we've been shouting for years. And I hate feeling helpless. I'm ashamed to say that sometimes my frustration leads to apathy and I hate feeling apathetic. 
Letters came from scientists in Europe, Australia, and the U.S. And in the end, Joe collected 44 handwritten letters, and he wanted them to change the world. But people had to see them on display. So he went to a few local thrift shops. I went into them and got like a whole bunch of framed photos, secondhand frames of like cats or fruit. And I pushed out the cats and the fruit and I framed the letters that I had. I think that added a dimension to the reading of the letters as well because they weren't sterile. They were these like lived, gnarled wooden frames. He hung the letters anywhere people would let him, in cafes, in art school. And then Joe took it a step further. He put them online, on a website called isthishowyoufeel.com. At first, he'd see just a handful of visitors. But soon, that number climbed. 500, 10,000, 20,000. And it got to the stage where the website got like a quarter of a million views in a weekend. And I was, I was freaking out, if I was honest with you, because... I didn't feel equipped to be able to deal with any repercussions. Joe was interviewed by the local news in Australia, and soon he was invited to display the letters in museums around the world. This began to open a lot of doors for him. It gave me the opportunity to reach out to international researchers because they would have heard of this project before I even spoke to them now because it was getting attention. But that came with vitriol and hatred. Joe began receiving hate mail right-leaning bloggers that were making fun of him and the scientists. And even though Joe would occasionally hear that the project had changed someone's mind about climate change, he couldn't help but feel emotionally exhausted. Remember, Joe wanted to change the world, and it wasn't happening fast enough. I was cooked. I couldn't keep pushing, um, and I couldn't keep trying to bring about change because I couldn't see enough. Now, of course, I know, I know that it did have an impact. You know, there was possibly, it might have played a part in some of the cultural shifts that you see in some research circles where, where researchers are now more comfortable sharing their feelings with each other. Um, so that was great. Uh, but it, but it, it didn't change the world. In 2016, Joe stopped responding to interview requests. He kept the website live, but he himself was done with the project. That was until the summer of 2019. It was a fire season like no other. A state of fire emergency has been declared for the first time in... The Black Summer Fires in Australia. It was a period of time when large forest fires went rampant across the continent. They lasted for nine months. 33 lives lost, 3,000 homes destroyed, 1 billion animals killed and an estimated 30 million hectares burned. You know, like a third of Australia was on fire. Um, I, my partner was pregnant and we left. We had to evacuate the house we were staying in and drive to another town, which was also on fire, so we had to drive the other way. Um, we had to sleep on a beach uh, during, the, during the height of the, the, the black summer fires in Australia. This experience was a huge wake-up call for Joe. He realized that putting his project on hold was not helping. So he decided to keep going. And in 2020, he reached out to scientists again with the same question. He got 23 letters back. 
By this time, more people believed in climate change, and almost every researcher applauded that shift in public opinion in their letter. But they also mentioned that, environmentally speaking, that shift was too little, too late. Katrin Meisner, the researcher who wrote one of the letters in 2014, wrote again. She told me that there had been some accomplishments, like the Paris Agreement and the goal to lower CO2 emissions, but it just wasn't ambitious enough. And I am sadder now because CO2 concentrations have been, like, they, they don't stop. They continue to rise. She says this reality hits home every day. I live right at the beach and I, I go swimming almost every day here before I go to work. But I cannot look at the ocean without thinking about what's happening under the surface in terms of changes in temperature, acidification. But Katrin is accepting that there are things she just can't change by herself. I know that the world as we have it right now is not going to stay the way it is right now. I know there's not much I can do about it other than continuing my research and, and communicating when I'm invited to, to governments, etc. I can do my little bit, but this is nothing. This is a little dust flock. At, at some point, I think you just need to accept, okay, that's what it is. I, I do my best and I still need to enjoy my life. I only have one life. This is a harsh reality to accept. And I wondered how these scientists like Katrin keep going, realizing that they can only do but so much, seeing the writing on the wall. I need some more food, Dad. I'll get you. Okay. Joe helped me understand. For him, he keeps going because of his young children, his son Fergus and daughter Odie. Fergus is two, and Odie was born several months ago. But I do think about them and I do think about the future and I do want desperately for them to grow up in a world where the attitudes are changing around climate change. So, you know, I'm happy to smash my head against the brick wall if it means that they don't have to as much. Joe plans to keep the letter project going strong and he's made a lifelong commitment to it, regardless of how big or small it turns out to be. That's because Joe just hopes to be one small part of the solution. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Curry. Taking the Temperature is a production of The Pulse at WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us every week wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.